Thank you very much for trusting me with this opportunity. And um, I'm feeling increasingly fragile um, as I've prepared for this, uh, because as you'll see, the topic that I'm dealing with this morning um, is about ministerial backsliding and burnout. And I wish I could stand before you and say that um, I'm dealing in theory and that I'm dealing in the abstract. Um, but I come with scars and self-inflicted wounds of both backsliding and burnout um, after 21 years of ministry. So what I have to share with you was originally imparted to me through a pastoral mentor and a teacher of mine some 22 years ago. Um, and, and I wish it was still theory for me. And I'm hopeful that this would be encouraging and helpful to you um, in a significant way, in, in a way that may bring refreshment and restoration or for some of you, prevention. Um, let's begin in the Word together, Proverbs chapter 5. And if I come across as heavy this morning, those of you who know me know that I'm, I'm typically optimistic and hopeful and happy, um, and the weight that I feel is very contrary to my nature. Um, I want to be liked by everybody. I want to make everybody laugh. Um, but I can't look at this topic in my own life without fear and trembling. Um, so please, uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, the father in Proverbs exhorting his son. And he says, Now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. You know Proverbs, you know the warning of the father to the son, you know that the woman that's being warned about here is the strange woman the foreign woman in contrast to the beautiful, godly, God-fearing woman of wisdom. You know that this is a warning of the way of foolishness and the way of folly and sin in God's world. And that he is appealing to his son at several levels. He says, listen to me, heed my instructions. I've been doing this longer than you have. I've lived life and I have things to impart to you that you, you need to hear, he says to his son. And then he gives these very sobering consequences. If you don't hear what I have to say, there, there are going to be terrible consequences. And he goes through some of those consequences. You'll give your strength to strangers. Your labors will be wasted and go on to a foreigner. And then the worst case scenario is at the end of the, your life, you will groan, your flesh and body are consumed, and you will be lamenting and saying, why didn't I listen to my teachers? Why did I hate discipline? 
Why did I really think I was smarter than those who had gone before me? Why was it that I wouldn't listen to wisdom? And then what to me is most sobering is that last verse. I am, was on the brink of destruction in the midst of the congregation. And uh, I know it has a particular Old Testament application. But I can say, my brothers, my sisters, that I have been on the brink of destruction in the midst of the congregation. In the busyness of ministerial labors, of apparent usefulness, and external expressions of being a godly man, that I have been on the brink of destruction in the midst of the congregation, standing up and preaching and teaching and counseling and being apparently used of the Lord, and yet on the brink of destruction. This is not intended to be a biography. I'm going to try to be as non-autobiographical as I can because I think the material of the wisdom and not just my own struggles um, is more important and hardy than, and biblical than what just telling you my story could be. But I wanted to give that background that I'm not standing as a theoretician, I'm standing as a near failure. And I'm saying to you, particularly younger men or men who have not yet been in the midst of destruction, in the midst of the congregation, to heed wise words for your own good and for the glory of God. We have recent examples, don't we, of men who have not heeded their instructors, of men who have departed from the faith, of men who have committed adultery, very public and celebrity figures. I'm, I'm neither one of those, but I promise you I don't look at those men and judging them and looking down on them, I say, there's my heart. I'm thankful for God's retrieval of me some three years ago from the midst of destruction, the brink of destruction. But here we have the proverbial warning to listen to faithful guides that have gone on before us. And at this point, I want to give full credit, you'll see in the footnote, to one of my early and primary pastoral mentor and teachers, Albert N. Martin. Uh, you can find his teaching on this material on Sermon Audio. It's just uh, warnings against ministerial backsliding and burnout, six messages there. He's very old school. He's a very uh, rhetorically polished speaker, very old school, if you like that kind of thing. Or you'll see there listed in the book, You Lift Me Up, uh, published by Mentor. And going through this material again, it just gave me even deeper reasons to grieve my own folly and sin and not listening. So full credit is due to him uh, for this material. I pass it on to you with some of my own nuances and changes and greater brevity than what he was able to give in his rhetorical skill. But let me, let me just introduce you to two concepts here and what I mean by them. First of all, backsliding. Here, by backsliding, I'm talking about the gradual erosion of internal spiritual reality spiritual vigor and spiritual growth it's that internal spiritual reality it is the reality of the fact that god really exists that he's keeping track of every idle thought and every idle deed that i live quorum deo that i really will one day stand before jesus christ in judgment and give an account for how i've lived that 
the Holy Spirit dwells in me, that I am really a new creation in Christ. The, the sense, the, the, the real sense and of, of reality of spiritual truth in the soul. We can know all of those things, brothers. We can know all those things, sisters, and be able to check off the, the theological checklist and not feel the realities of them. It's a Backsliding is the erosion of that spiritual reality, that sense of spiritual vigor and life and enthusiasm and living in passion for the glory of God, not because it's our job, not because it's our profession, not because we're trying to keep up appearances, but because we believe these things. And then the erosion, lastly, of spiritual growth. As Paul says to Timothy, make your progress be seen and known to all. We ought to be continually growing and bearing fruit. And even what Psalm 92 says, that they were, will bear fruit in old age and they, they will be full of sap and their, their leaf will not wither, as Psalm 1 says, that as our decades move on, there ought to be evident progress in grace and growth and holiness. And backsliding is any gradual erosion, pebble by pebble, sand by sand, usually not some plunging into sin, but the erosion of reality and vigor and spiritual growth. But it's also the decline of grace-motivated. That's the internal reality. The decline of grace-motivated, spirit-enabled, conscientious obedience to the known will of God. That's the external, to, to be keeping a good conscience before God, by, by walking in the will of God and knowing what we need to do, of being informed by the Word of God and conscientiously, spiritually, gospel-saturated, spirit-filled obedience to the full will of God as much as we know it. It's an erosion of that external obedience, particularly the external obedience as known when nobody else is around and nobody else sees us when even our own family don't have eyes on us, what we're doing on the internet, what we're doing in the liquor cabinet, what we're doing in the secret place. And so backsliding, as I'm terming it here, is this gradual erosion of internal realities and a decline of these kind of motivated, spirit-enabled obedience to the known will of God. And these can affect us often imperceptibly, even in the midst of the most active and externally apparent faithful labors. This is a true saying. We can be preaching sermons that people identify and see and comment and encourage us on, and yet inwardly and in the secret place we are eroding from these spiritual realities and vigors. And here, I mentioned that I, th I believe the contributors to this category of backsliding are primarily personal and moral and internal. And, and by that, I mean that these are moral failures. These are moral um, realities that, of, of things that we're failing to do and walking with God and obeying Him and believing the gospel and resting in Christ and so by backsliding, I'm putting a particularly moral color um, on that, which comes down to burnout, which I see is slightly different. And these, as I'll mention in a moment, are often intertwined in which one comes first and how they affect one another. 
Um, it's difficult to sort out, but by burnout, I mean a gradual erosion of one's mental, emotional, psychological, and physical resilience. These, as I'll mention just a couple of points below, in these categories are primarily, I believe, interpersonal and circumstantial and amoral and are affecting us just by the circumstances of being external. And so I'm, 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 I'm dividing these two out, but it, it has to do with burnout of just a loss of physical resilience, psychological resilience, of joy, of happiness, of an ability to bounce back from difficult situations. And here it's not the ordinary decline, for example, physically, which often accompanies old age. Here the contributors again are interpersonal, amoral, and again, I, I don't want to dice this up too much and separate them too much, but I think you, you get what I'm, I'm talking about here. So these two categories are often in, intertwined and overlapping, and in my case and many other cases, it's hard. Well, was there burnout that then led to backsliding, or was there backsliding that led to burnout? And, and I, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I can't sort myself out. I can't sort you out. Um, but what I know is they often come hand in hand. They often are intertwined. They often feed on one another. And what I'm also talking about, backsliding and burnout, I'm referring not to incidents that are acute and occasional. I mean, how many mornings do, have we gotten up to read our Bible, to pray, to, to, to serve someone, to do something in pastoral or other ministry, and we go to do that and we're just flat or we're spiritually dull? Well, we all go through those ups and downs, but I'm talking about not acute and occasional, but prolonged patterns of this kind of backsliding and burnout where days turn into weeks, turn into months, and can turn into years. I'm talking about not acute episodes, but where it becomes a pattern in our life. And I'm also not referring to the mysterious and divinely appointed seasons that the Puritans referred to as the dark night of the soul, where I'm pursuing God, I'm doing what I know, and yet there's a darkness that will not lift in the midst of that, that I'm doing all that I know to do, I'm walking with a good conscience, I'm seeking God's face, and yet the darkness will not lift. I'm not referring to, to that in particular. So here are eight counsels. If we were, would, and, I, and let me just pause here and just say, would you want to avoid backsliding in your life? Would you want to avoid burnout? Then here are eight counsels, um, not for the guarantee, but for the attempted prevention of backsliding and burnout. And again, I'll refer you to Al Martin's uh, tapes and his, his book, uh, Tapes. Boy, that's old school. Wow. <laughs> Now available on 8-track, for, just for you. I still remember 8-tracks. For audio, sorry about that. That's old school. It shows my age. Eight counsels for the prevention of backsliding and burnout. And obviously, all of these can be expanded. I'm determined by the end of our time to move through them. First of all, do not allow the demands of your official pastoral or ministry duties, whatever that may be for you, to erode the disciplines of the devotional nurture of your own soul in communion with God. 
Don't, don't allow the demands of your official pastoral duties. Brothers this is, and sisters, this, this is one of the first things that can go. That we're so busy trafficking and laboring in the Word, ministering the Word to others, thinking about counseling, thinking about how to do ministry, thinking about vision, that we can neglect the discipline of the devotional nurture of our own soul in communion with God. And so I'm talking about not reading the Bible for preparation of sermon, for preparation of Bible studies, but to commune with God. I'm talking about reading the Word to feast upon it primarily for ourselves, to feed from the Word, that the Word would be sweet to us as honey, and an end of itself to feed my soul, to commune with God, to hear from God, to pray not just that I can get things done and that my purposes would be accomplished and that God would fix that situation, but pray in communion with God and interacting with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. To pray is an end for its own sake and even come to those devotional times as if we have nothing else that we're preparing for. Talking about acute, disciplined, urgent, and yet restful times with Christ and with the Father and with the Spirit. Talking about reading literature that's not just academically based or not just how to get things done or how to set vision or how to run the church, but devotional literature from the masters of 2,000 years of church history to read those like Baxter and Owen and others in whose streams you may swim in. I started rereading last night or reading, uh, read some other John Owen, but started reading his treatise on, um, on spiritual mindedness. And boy, man, it's, it comes at a good time. The difference between what Romans 8 talks about, what Paul writes about, about the mind that is set on the flesh and the mind that is set on the spirit. And he gives this promise, the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. And man, I need life. I need vigor. I need spiritual life. And I need peace. I need shalom. So reading devotional lit literature here, not neglecting the practice of Sabbath. And this is where Eugene Peterson and Peter Scazzaro have been teaching me so much, but resting and being present and waiting in the presence of God without an agenda. Specific weekly and monthly and quarterly times to be in the presence of Christ and wait on the Lord. Here, the times of fasting, a much neglected um, discipline in our day to say no and to fast for the specific spiritual pursuit of the Lord. Meditation on the truths of the Word of God and on and on. We can get so busy with ministry that we can neglect the devotional nurturing of our own soul in communion with God. And this isn't a, a luxury, brothers and sisters. Unless you abide in me and my word abides in you, you can do nothing. You can bear no fruit. And remember there from Mark, what is the great commandment is to love the Lord your God. Not serve the Lord your God, but love the Lord your God with all your mind and heart and soul and strength. It is relational. And again, I love the Puritan term of communion with God to come together with in union with the Trinity and 
take from that trinity life and vigor and strength. So that's first, and I think it's one of the most fundamental, important, which is why it is here. Second, do not fall into the trap of thinking that the performance of specific pastoral duties justifies or negates, and here you can strike out the word all, it should be any, negates any general Christian duty. The idea here is that, well, I've got ministry in the kingdom and I've got important things to accomplish. Therefore, I'm exempt from the ordinary Christian duties of loving my wife as Christ has loved the church, of raising my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, of obeying the word of God in all areas of life, that somehow, well, because I'm in ministry, those things I kind of get a pass on in some way. And that that is a surefire way that leads to backsliding and burnout. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, we have notice in that qualifications of elders, except for the issue of apt to teach, all of the others are general Christian graces. In 1 Timothy 3, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. A faithful husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert and on and on in humility. And so I don't get a pass on those things in general Christian obedience because I'm in ministry and God is using me in a special way. And here I would point out specifically in regards to one's own family that never, God never calls us to sacrifice on the altar our family or our marriage on the altar of ministry. As urgent as it may be, as important and vital as it may be, He never calls us to sacrifice our marriage, our children, our love for them, and put ministry of any sort, of any intensity, of any level of importance above the general responsibility to love and submit and help and encourage our families. As a matter of fact, if you notice in that passage, Paul Paul says, you want to know if a man's qualified for ministry? Look at their home. And if they're not functioning well in their own home, how will they care for the church of God? Number three, do not fail to maintain a good conscience before God and man. And here the word should be excluding it because of apparent giftedness and usefulness in the service of Christ. And here the passage we can refer to is Acts chapter 24, verse 16. It's a passage that I've never been able to get over, and I've, I wish I could live such a life that I could say this with Paul. Paul stands before Felix to give a defense, and among the propagation of uh, uh, telling of his own testimony, his own call. He says this. It's an amazing passage. Acts 24, 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. The conscience, as you know, is that internal mechanism, psychological mechanism, if you will, that God has given us that either affirms us in good and evil or resists us in regards to what is evil. 
It is that internal voice that says you are doing the right thing. It is that voice that says you are doing the wrong thing. And I was thinking over, uh, on the way over this morning of an illustration for this. And uh, I used Todoist, and I have uh, repeating tasks that come up. And um, in, in all the productivity literature and videos that you see, it's like after you, after you delay something, you know, over so many days or so many weeks, at the end of the day, you realize, you know, you're, you're, you're just putting that thing forward. You're not really serious about doing it. And so either take it off your to-do list or mute it or put it somewhere else for someday maybe. And I think that sometimes our consciences do that to us that we keep hitting mute or we keep hitting postpone. When we are convicted of sin, when we're convicted of some way that we ought to be walking or something that we ought to be doing, and the conscience keeps pro probing us and prodding us and poking us and saying, you know you really need to go talk to that person. You know you really need to confess this sin. You know you really need to make this issue a priority. We say, yes, postpone it till tomorrow. Postpone it till tomorrow. What eventually happens is the voice diminishes. And I can say again by personal testimony, you keep hitting that mute button, you keep hitting that silence button, suddenly you begin to hit it in other areas of your life. And the thing that used to rub you raw in your own conscience suddenly doesn't bother you anymore. And then it begins to spread to other areas and becomes easier and easier just to ignore, just to neglect, and just to silence the voice. And there are those occasions that John Bunyan talks about and writes about in Holy War where conscience is up in the tower of man's soul. And he will, though he has been bound by the Diabolians and his mouth has been strapped, he occasionally will break out and he will scream in the city and the whole city of man's soul will shake and they run over and they bind him back up. And sometimes that happens and that is a gift and grace of God when conscience breaks out and says, you know better than this. And we shouldn't hit mute in silence. So maintaining a good conscience. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. This is the testimony of our conscience. Imagine our consciences stepping out and standing beside us. And when we're speaking, our conscience bearing witness whether what we're saying is true. And our conscience be, being able to say, yes, that's exactly the truth. Number four, do not allow the position and duties of the ministry or of any ministry to engender isolation from the relational nurture. You can add the word relational in there. From the relational nurture of the body of Christ. There's the danger of professionalism. I would recommend to you John Piper's book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. There's the danger of professionalism that I've got to keep things together. I've got to keep appearances if they really know me, if they really understand me then somehow I will be disqualified. Well, if so, it may be because there are things that would disqualify us. We need to sort that issue out. But here, it's the relational nurture of the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4.16, right after the passage where Paul talks about the gifts of Christ that are given to the church for the equipping of the saints of the work of ministry, he then goes on to talk about 
how that body builds itself up, speaking the truth, so that from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And the idea here is that we aren't just mouthpieces to the body of Christ, that it's not a unilateral equipping, it's not just a unilateral investment into the lives of others we need to be invested in. We need to be encouraged. We need to hear from the most mature to the least mature in the congregation because they have things to contribute to us. They have ways to speak into us. They have ways and things to teach us from the smallest babe to the oldest saint. Learning from the least to the greatest. And this includes uh, it, it, relational nurture, not only within our own congregation, but also the larger body of Christ in situations like this and in other friendships. Here there's the issue of friendship itself, relationship to our elders. We need to have those relationships with the body of Christ of transparency and vulnerability and accountability one of the things I've prayed over the years, and I've failed out much, but I continue to pray, is that if I would love to die, and if my life were put on display before my church, that they would not be shocked by my ungodliness, but they would be shocked by my godliness. That there would be a depth of my character and of my Christian walk that is not put on for show and is not put on and nobody else sees us, that they would be shocked to say he was much godlier than we even realized. That's one of my prayers. That the secret life that I live before the Lord would not be a shock and devastation to the people of God. Because if it is, it's going to seep out at some point. The next one here, number five, do not allow the use of your time and proportions of your pastoral labors to be dictated by the perceived needs of the people. Here we have Acts chapter 6, verse 4, where the widows uh, are, are, at least there's an accusation that the, the Greek widows, the Hellenistic widows are being neglected for the sake of the more Jewish Hebraic widows. And they come to the apostles and they say, you need to sort this thing out. And they said, it's not good for us to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer for the sake of serving tables. We can't, this, this is high on the agenda and this is a serious issue and this needs to be sorted through. We need to appoint somebody for it. But if we do that, we will neglect prayer and the ministry of the word. So you appoint and you look out among yourselves those that we may appoint so that we may devote ourselves to prayer. And brothers and sisters, I, I quoted this verse wrong for a number of years because of my own skewed priority, which is we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, but prayer is actually put first. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what's amazing is at the end of that passage, it says that the word of the Lord grew. So the perceptions of people, and here I, I'll, I'll even say something that uh, is, is particularly difficult, I think, for us, is those in pastoral positions, is neglecting investing in people for the sake of trying to fix and help people. It's a great trap, and, and we need to care for all the flock. We need to, we need to do what we can to encourage and to help, 
But there were patterns of my own ministry where I spent far, far more time trying to help people and counsel people that often it felt like I was trying to drag them through their own sanctification, that I was more passionate about their holiness. I was more interested in fixing of their, their walk with the Lord and their marriages and other than they were. And so I, I would come and I would give recommendations and, and they wouldn't follow up on it and they wouldn't do things about it and, and they wouldn't do what I asked them to do and I would give them counsel and I, I had one couple literally said to me, we decided in the next counseling session, they said, we decided even before we got home, we were not going to do what you told us to do. And I spent countless sincere, earnest hours investing and in, in pouring into people who I felt like I was dragging through their own sanctification. At the end, it, it bore no fruit that I'm aware of. And I did that to the neglect of the faithful. Invest these things. Teach these things to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So when it comes to leadership training, when it comes to investing in the faithful, it's like, well, the faithful are kind of taking care of themselves, so I've got to spend all my time. And there's something that's really motivated well, but I'll, I'll tell you the skewedness of my own heart. There's something very broken in that on my part which is a bit of a Messiah complex, the need to be needed, the want to be wanted. Pastor, we just, we can't do this without you. We need you. And there's an inner part of me that says, man, that feels good. Man, that feels good. To people, to have people in crisis to call on me. They didn't call on anybody else. They called me. Well, that feels good at first, but is absolutely exhausting over time and itself will lead to a kind of emotional detachment and burnout which can lead to just not even caring. So for that reason, we, we, can't, we, we have to balance out. We have to, as I mentioned here, understand what are our primary ordinary responsibilities what are the big rocks in our life because just because somebody is having a crisis doesn't mean their crisis is our crisis and that's that's a hard lesson to learn in ministry because once you have a flock that is of any size and there's a number of crises then you find yourself out every night then you find yourself being called and feeling obligated to text and respond immediately. And it doesn't take very many people before that starts eating up all of your time and your energies. And then there's the difficulty of not submitting to the needs dictated by the others. There, there, there are folks in our church who have passions and desires, and they think that our church, and I in particular, ought to carry their passions and desires. And so if, if the church had it their way, I'd preach like Spurgeon. I'd pray like Hudson Taylor. I would evangelize like George Whitfield. I would give the pastoral care of David Pallison and just assemble and cobble together this picture of the perfect man, and I would have the, the missionary passion of Adoniram Judson, and I would have a, a, a concern for this thing and that thing, and everybody puts those perceptions, and here I am, I can never meet those things. Put all together, and then people will get upset and leave because you don't do this, and you don't do that, and you don't have this passion that I do. It's like, this is your passion, man. That's why we need you in the church, sister. 
And so cobbling together the people's expectations, and you know this as well as I do, that full-time ministry does not mean that we have infinite time. Full-time ministry does not mean we have infinite energies or, or infinite capacities. That, that we are men and we are women and we are finite. And so we better sort it out with whoever we're responsible to, whether it be our fellow elders or the ministry that we work for, like what are my priorities? And I'm going to set those priorities in my schedule. And there are times that I'm going to convey the appearance of hard-heartedness because somebody else's code one, code red priority is not necessarily mine. Even Jesus himself in Mark chapter 1, verse 35 gives the appearance of hard-heartedness in response to present felt needs. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And what did they want? They wanted healing. They wanted sins forgiven. They wanted things that were absolutely legitimate. And instead, Jesus didn't say, well, okay, they're looking for me. Let's go take care of this. Verse 38, he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. His why drove his how. And the felt needs of the people and the legitimate needs of the people to be healed and cared for, there were times that Jesus was willing to risk being thought of as hard-hearted to say, I know the reason I've come, and it's not for this, and I'm passing on this ministry opportunity so I may keep to the task that God has called me to do. And I'm a high um, internal and external obliger, and if somebody just puts a little bit of pressure on me to do something, I feel incredibly guilty if I don't respond. But having our primary ordinary responsibilities not only understood our big rocks, but also scheduled. This is what I'm going to be doing. I'm doing, going to be ser- doing sermon prep. I'm going to be spending this devotional time. I'm taking a Sabbath off. And unless it's a genuine emergency, car crash, going to the hospital, For someone who is dying, then this is my priority. And I'm very sorry you're having this difficult time right now, but I have other obligations I must keep. And I've gotten over that feeling that I need to tell them what those obligations are. And if it's a ball game with my kid, I I have a good conscience with saying, I'm sorry, I have another obligation this evening. I can't come and see you all. Can we get our schedules together and see when we might be able to do this? We need you right now. Well, are you killing one another? Call the police. Is she walking out the door? Well, then go pursue her. Those are hard calls to make. Number six, do not allow your studies to be confined to reading. The last point of the last one, the danger of personal insecurity and desire to be useful is is the very thing that can just wear us out. And we need our security in Christ. We need to find our identity in Christ. We need to find our fulfillment in Christ. 
Jesus said, unless you hate all others for my name's sake, you cannot be my disciple. What I understand that to be is that Jesus says, you've got to hate all others so that you can love me, so that when, you tell, when I tell you to love others, you can do that because of your love for me, not your love or need or identity found in them. Quickly here, number six, do not allow your studies to be confined to reading and preparing. I'm just going to pass on this very quickly. We need our hearts, our emotions, our, our psychology, our thinking to be expanded, not just to our own pastoral labors or ministry labors. In Psalm 111, verse 2, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all those who take delight into them. So with the, the assumption that of the importance of careful reading and exegeting passages and preaching of the word, we need to schedule general reading of things that bring us life. I, when, when, I am, when I am sapless and when I am lifeless, there's nothing more I love to do than to go on vacation, take C.S. Lewis with me, not, not the actual C.S. Lewis, but his books, and a pipe, and spend half of the, my morning... Uh, <laughs> and smoke my pipe and read C.S. Lewis, there's nothing that brings me to life like that. As I pray, as I commune with the Lord, um, and then spend the rest of the half of the day. I take that from Martin Lloyd-Jones when he used to go on, on his sabbaticals. He, he, he told his family, the first half of the day, I'm going to be with the Lord, I'm going to read, I'm going to refresh my mind and my heart and read general things. Second half of the day, whatever you want me to do, ride go-karts, play putt-putt, go on a parasail, I'll do that, but first half the day is mine and the Lord's. And so the point here is the general reading that is broad and varied, reading literature, reading outside of our own specific areas of expertise and interest to foster in us imagination and creativity. Number seven, do not allow your official position and functions in the ministry to become a wall to hide behind or a cocoon to constrict the emotional realities of your own humanity. Paul can say to those Corinthians who probably were ready, and you know 2 Corinthians, there's a lot of accusations against him. Their hearts are closed against him. I mean, this is a church that if you don't want to be transparent to or want things used against you, the Corinthians is the church you don't want to be particularly transparent with because they're going to use it against you. But listen to what Paul says about his, himself. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Uh, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. He he. he describes himself as afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. And, and even more so, he says in chapter 1, verse 8, we do not want you to be ignorant of the affliction. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I, would, I, I was a point in ministry, I was ready to die. I would rather have died. I was despairing of life itself. That's how hard ministry was for Paul that we despaired of life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So here's Paul writing to a church that are very well going to use his words. Well, he's strong when he's away, but when he's present, he's very weak. And Paul still says, I'm still going to tell you who I am. 
You can use that against me, but I'm going to still tell you because it's the truth. The ministry can become a wall to hide behind, and I can say more particularly in my own case, a cocoon to constrict the emotional realities of your humanity. We went through a very, very, the most difficult year, year and a half of 21 years of pastoral ministry recently. And I believe that I used spiritual principles and even my position to cocoon my emotions and constrict my emotions and not deal with the realities of, of a sense of betrayal, of anger, of disappointment, because I had to be the guy that responded the right way. And I was constricting my own emotional grief. And you can read um, Chip Dodd's book, The Voice of the Heart. You can read Peter Scazzaro's um, Emotionally Healthy Leader or Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. But I finally realized that there's a Pandora's box in my soul of suppressed and cocooned emotions because of my ministerial position, my pastoral position. You can read B.B. Warfield's The Emotional Life of Our Lord to kind of get a survey of the reality that Jesus was not this kind of stoical, passive, psychologically constrained humanity, but he, he expressed anger and frustration and disappointment, yet without sin. Here's a quote from A.N. Martin to give you a taste of him. We mistakenly think allowing any clear and natural expressions of felt weakness, crippling fears, discouragements, and struggles with our own sins will erode people's confidence in us. We fear that transparency in such matters will lower the biblical standard for the ministry and that we begin to make the ministry itself a wall behind which to hide our frail and imperfectly sanctified humanity. I love this. God never called a man to the gospel ministry with a view to de dehumanizing him because that's what it is. It's dehumanizing. Was it Chip Dodd says? To feel our feelings and then to process them at the cross. Coming to the cross doesn't mean we just kill our feelings. It means bringing our real feelings and emotions to the cross so we know how to address them. Number eight, I'm a minute over already. Number eight, do not serve God in the ministry to the neglect or abuse of your own physical health. In Exodus 20, 13, and the Puritans were good at this. The Westminster Confession is great at this. What are the sins of that commandment? To do no murder, to not kill? Well, it includes ourselves. And in the stress of our day and the abundance of food of our day and the often sedentary nature of our jobs of sitting and sitting we are killing ourselves by eating the wrong foods by not caring for ourselves by not getting enough sleep by not eating well by not giving getting significant substantial physical exercise it is a sin to do self-murder 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, glorify your God in your body. We are not disembodied souls or spirits. The reality of our present psychosomatic nature, that the two are affecting one another and connected with one another. Someone once got on to uh, Spurge, I believe it was, who was riding first class coach. And somebody said, well, what are, you, what are you doing with the Lord's money? He said, I'm caring for the Lord's servant. Not out of luxury, but that mentality that I've, I need my sleep. 
And I'm 51 years old now, and one of the stressors that happened was the sleeplessness, and my brain started shutting down. I started getting thick in the tongue. I started mentally, and I've got pictures of a year ago where my wife's like, please don't ever go back there. I can see it in your eyes. I could tell it in your countenance. You were exhausted, and you were worn out, and I was quickly on my way to some sort of a breakdown, I believe. And so what is it? I need to eat well and treat food as fuel. To treat exercise as necessary for the maintaining of our physical nature. Falling into patterns of the abuse of food and alcohol. And I'll I'll be transparent and say, I was that guy who fought for Christian liberty, fought for Christian freedom, and for me had to come about a little over a year ago to make a lifelong vow that I would never drink alcohol again because of my particular weaknesses. So the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of sleep or lack of sleep, lack of exercise, the lack of recreation, not having hobbies, a lack of physical checkups. So those are the eight. May I indulge two, two more minutes, brother? In application, and all of these, again, can be gone more deeply into the words. Considering these words is corrective and restorative. If, if you find yourself, and if God is using this to uncover a present condition, and again, I was that guy sitting in meetings like this, and all of that dark stuff was going on in my soul, and I didn't respond to it. and was on the brink of destruction in the midst of the congregation. If God is using this to uncover your present condition of backsliding or burnout, remember it has been to show himself to you as a gracious God who delights to heal you. This is from the Valley of Vision. I bless you that those who turn aside may return to you immediately and be welcomed without anything to commend them, notwithstanding all of their former backslidings. Isn't that good news? I confess that this is suited to my case, for of late I have found great want. I've found a lack of apprehension of divine grace. I've been greatly distressed of soul because I did not suitably come to the fountain that purges away all sin. I've labored too much for a spiritual life, peace of conscience, progressive holiness in my own strength. I beg you, show me the arm of all might. Give me to believe that you can do for me more than I ask or think, and though that though I backslide, your love will never let me go. Which brings us to point two. Remember the necessity of dealing with these things in a thoroughly gospel evangelical way. This isn't about justification. This isn't about trying to get myself right with God in justifying and, and meriting my salvation because it's all based on grace. The reason I even feel conviction over these things, the reason I want to live passionately for Him is because the gospel is true and by grace I'm in. And I'm adopted, and I'm loved, and I'm in union with Christ. So don't begin with obedience. Begin with the gospel of God's love for you. And despite, it's an amazing thing that I can think back in the darkest time three years ago when the alcohol was going and I was disconnected from my family and and I was on the verge of destroying myself and my family and the ministry that God did not love me any less in that moment than what I'm doing all that I know to do. 
Number three, remember the necessity of dealing with these things with deep and thorough internal repentance and outward action. We are called not to just be hearers of the word and being convicted by the word, but to be doers of the word. Evangelical obedience, gospel obedience empowers us and calls us to say, I'm not just going to feel conviction over this and feel sorry and confess it. I need to figure out with perhaps the help of, uh, help of a counselor or a life coach or someone else to come and put it out all on the table and be honest and transparent so I can say it out loud, so I can face it in its ugliness, and I can get help today. Not hitting the snooze button, not hitting the mute button. Today I'm going to look for help. This includes both having dealings with God in the secret place as well as involving the right people. And then number four, remember our dependence on God's gracious spirit to empower us to change the patterns and practices which have brought us to where we presently are. We cannot do this of ourselves. The flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. We need prayer and dependence on God to change us refresh us and revive us in the midst of our years. So for some here, perhaps like me, not very long ago, this is corrective and restorative. May God use that in your lives if that's true of you. And if not, then heed the words of Proverbs 5, these words as preventative. Now, sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from backsliding. Keep your Self far from burnout by these counsels. I'll just close by referring to the two footnotes here. First of all, just over three years ago, as I've mentioned, the Lord preserved me from falling from a cliff of destruction in my ministry, my family. I would be glad to meet with any of you to tell the fuller story and of not just that, but the demonstration of the Lord's kindness and faithfulness to me in bringing beauty out of ashes. There's my contact information. Please feel free either today or later to connect with me. And then another resource that helped me through these issues that practically saved my ministerial life was Peter Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Leader, as well as working with a life coach during a very crucial time and taking a sabbatical, uh, not only through this issue of three years ago, but also um, some very difficult church issues that we went through uh, over the last year, year and a half. So I apologize for the 10 minutes, 9 minutes, 15 seconds overage. Um, let me pray for us. I could. Well, Lord, these are heavy things. They are heavy warnings, but I pray they would be warnings and counsels that would weigh heavy on us if necessary. Lord, it is, it is such good news that you have none loved us nonetheless, that even where there is conviction, even if where there are areas that we see and are exposed and laid bare before you, that, Lord, you would use your spirit to bring life and light, to help us to cling to Christ, to run to the cross, to address it with the gospel, Lord, but we would not be content to leave it there, but we would ask, O oh Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts that we might run in your precepts for your glory, for our good, for the good of our churches, for the good of our family. So please cause these things to be sealed to our heart. Help us even as we fellowship together. We plead in Jesus' name, amen.